Welcome to Poverty Unpacked, the podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. In conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, we speak with Annabelle Williams. Annabelle is financial journalist and columnist, having previously worked at The Times. She is author of the book, Why Women Are Poorer Than Men. She mixes hard-hitting facts and figures with examples from the UK and beyond to explore the gender gap in income and wealth. Together we discuss how many policies and schemes disadvantage women and lock them into poverty. Annabelle is critical of neoliberal feminism and workplace gurus such as Sheryl Sandberg, who tell women to lean in and to solve issues by advocating for themselves and asking for a higher pay. Annabelle, as you will hear, is adamant that the feminization of poverty is about much more than the pay gap, and we should be paying attention to many more different factors. Annabelle, thank you very much for joining the podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you on. Now, you wrote this book called Why Women Are Poorer Than Men. And to start our conversation, could you give us an indication of how much poorer women are compared to men? And maybe talk about some of the standout statistics or discrepancies that people should know about. Thank you for having me on, Katie. Look, one reason I wanted to write this book is to bring facts about female economic inequality, which are so well known within financial services and academia, bring those ideas into the mainstream. Now, whenever I talk about my book, Why Women Are Poorer Than Men, people always respond with, is this a book about the pay gap? And it's really frustrating because feminization of poverty is persistent. So it's a phenomenon that basically occurs across centuries, across continents and different cultures. And then it's also something that starts in childhood with girls gradually having kind of less resources attributed to them. And then it continues throughout the life cycle and it just gets worse. It culminates in this kind of hidden crisis of old age poverty, hidden in the sense that it hasn't been addressed ever. So with regards to some of the facts, um, when I talk to people about this, I try to start by trying to get them to think about the pay gap, right? It isn't just a case of women who are being unfairly paid or underpaid or even just earning less than men compared to what they could be earning for their qualification and skill level. That doesn't just affect women in the here and now. It has an impact throughout the rest of their lives. So the thing that I found most shocking was... In the UK, we have a huge housing affordability crisis. There's been a shortage of properties. This shortage has accumulated over decades and the state has sold off all social housing. So there's very little provision of that for people who can't afford private rents or can't afford to get a mortgage. What's actually happened is that house prices have risen very, very far above average incomes. And for the younger generation in particular, levels of home ownership are kind of at record lows. People don't talk about how badly this affects women. So a couple of statistics that I can give you. So the gender pay gap for women is 18% in the UK and mortgage lenders are restricted in how much they can lend people as a multiple of their salary. They can generally only lend people 4.5 times their income. So really the pay gap is multiplied many times over. So if a woman on average earnings applies for a mortgage, and so does a man, the man would be able to borrow £145,000 more than the typical woman. 
Now, that is a hell of a lot of house that a man would be able to buy without a woman. The impact of that, basically, is as house prices have risen over the past decade, the numbers of women who are actually able to buy a home on a mortgage by themselves has fallen to the point where latest statistics show that only 8% of all first-time buyers who bought a property in a single year were women buying alone. That's 8%. That basically means that 92% of property purchases of first-time buyers are either men buying alone or men buying with women. That figure for women of 8% has shrunk far faster than it has for men. So something like 15 years ago, women made up 15% of solo first-time buyers. The equivalent figure for men was 20%. For men, it's only shrunk a little bit down to 18%. So from 20% to 18%. And for women, I mean, it's it's more than halved. That, to me, is really indicative of how economic inequality between the genders is just so in our face, but at the same time, really hidden. The other thing that really shocked me was that when we talk about homelessness, people always, it always brings to mind the image of a homeless man. Now, in the UK, there are something like 8,000 rough sleepers, um, if you believe the official statistics, and they are all men, pretty much. If you walk the streets of London or any other British city, you will see men kind of sitting at the side of the street and begging. However, what people don't realise is actually nearly 70% of the people who are homeless in the UK are women. And it's hidden homelessness. They aren't hunkered down outside a supermarket or sleeping under a bridge at night because it's not safe to do so. These are basically a nomadic tribe of women and usually their children too who move between state-funded bed and breakfast to women's refuge to temporary shelter. They sofa surf, or in the worst case, they have to sell sex in exchange for a place to sleep. As the housing crisis has intensified and property prices around the world have risen, in the Western world at least, have risen so far above average incomes. And then what we have basically is women, this kind of forgotten 50% of the population who are the majority of the homeless and nobody talks about it. That's quite a roundabout answer to your question, Kitty. So I'm going to stop there. Now, when I was reading your book, one thing that really struck me, and you just alluded to this as well, is that the income and wealth gap between women and men builds up over the life cycle. Could you elaborate a little bit on some of the the key moments in women's lives that play into this gap and how the gap then also reinforces itself or it gets compounded over time as women grow older? That's a great question. What happens for women over the course of their lives is that their income generally starts to fall behind. And we know the reasons for this. It's because women have to take on unpaid labour relating to children and increasingly older family members too. That's really well discussed. But what we don't talk enough about is how this culminates in a kind of a crisis of old age poverty. So just to kind of put this in context, women live for longer than men. They have been doing that throughout history in every place with reliable records in every year that we've got documentation for. And this goes back hundreds of years. So Sweden, for example, they kept really excellent, comprehensive public records for generations. And even back in 1800, the average life expectancy of a woman was higher than it was for a man. This isn't even something that's unique to humans or even grown women. Baby girls are more likely to survive to their first birthday than baby boys, and female apes outlive their male counterparts. It's a super survival trait. It's a really interesting feature of female biology. And just as an aside, 
Um, scientists have been baffled by this and can't work out why. It used to be thought that maybe men wore themselves out by doing kind of work that was harder and more dangerous outdoors. But as populations have shifted to have men and women working indoors, often in office environments, this kind of trick of female longevity has persisted. Scientists think that perhaps testosterone has some kind of degrading effects on the body, or conversely, that estrogen has some kind of protective effects. Nonetheless, let's just put this in context. So for at least 200 years, public records all over have been showing that women live for longer than men. So why has no state ensured that they have pension provision, which ensures that women have enough money to see them through those extra years of life? In fact, what happens is the opposite. Across Europe, women tend to reach a retirement age with an average of 50% less saved for their retirement than men do, with also the knowledge that they're going to outlive men. So um, the difference of how long women live varies around the world. They can expect to live between 10 and 13 years longer than men in parts of the former Soviet Union, so Russia and Kazakhstan. But globally, women will live four to seven years longer than men. This is both a problem of women not being able to save enough during their working lives, but it's not just because of the pay gap. And it won't just be rectified by more women being able to be in senior roles and maybe do them for five years longer than they would have done you know, a generation ago, perhaps. And the reason for this is it's because of the way that pension schemes are set up. So in the workplace, typically, your employer will deduct a proportion of your salary and squirrel it away for your pension. And then the employer will also add a percentage of your salary on top. Now, clearly, if men are on average earning more money and women are earning less, then the actual percentage that they're saving is going to be smaller. And the percentage of money that goes to the to the male workforce will obviously be higher as well. This is something that we just it just doesn't make any sense you know so when people get bonuses and part of that is taken away into their pension and saved for later life you know men are going to be saving more then at the same time when you look at individual states and the incentives that they have around encouraging people to save for their retirement in britain the scheme is called tax relief so the state basically it adds a top up of 20% uh, for kind of people who are on the lower tax rung adds a top up of 20% into their pensions. And then people who are earning more money would get a 40% top up. Now, that in itself is backwards because it means that the people who are lower rate taxpayers who are earning less money only get a smaller top up into their retirement. And guess what? That's predominantly women in the UK. Conversely, the people who are higher rate taxpayers earn more money and going to be saving more anyway for retirement, get a bigger kind of top up and tax break to incentivize them to save for retirement. And the statistic is actually kind of mental. In the UK, the government spends 53 billion every year on this tax relief scheme to incentivize people to save for retirement, but over 70% of that sum goes to men. So that means men receive, I've worked it out, it's 37.6 billion from the taxpayer to help them save for retirement, even though we know that women live for longer and have far less saved. These statistics are just vast. At the same time, Many countries have a state pension system, which in, in the UK is similar to many other comparable countries. You need to work and pay something called national insurance uh, for 35 years to qualify to receive a full state pension, which is still at a level that leaves people below the poverty line. So there's no official poverty line in the UK, but 
charities put together indicators of poverty. We know that the state pension that you receive each year would leave somebody below the poverty line if they're reliant on it. And again, the majority of people who are reliant on it, especially over the age of 85, are women. Now, this kind of system where you need to work for 35 years uh, and pay contributions for that period of time in order to qualify for state support in old age, that's inherently problematic for women because that hurdle is only achievable by half the population. And that's the people who are in work consistently and never have to take time off work for unpaid caring responsibilities. You know, and I paused there because I really hate using that phrase, take time off work, because having a child or caring for elderly relatives is not really time off at all. It's a whole different world of stressful. What this has meant is that basically far too many women reach old age and they have neither sufficient private pension savings uh, or nothing saved from their workplace and they don't qualify for state support. In 2006, only 13% of women qualified to receive state pension compared to 92% of men. That stat sounds like it was a really long time ago, 2006, but actually if you think about it, Those people who retired at that age are probably still alive. If you retired kind of at 55 to 65 and you're a woman, you may well still be alive. Mind boggling to think how government schemes such as tax relief and state pensions are actually so systematically biased against women and really disadvantage women in old age in that way. Now, coming back to that issue of of the men having less income. One of the arguments that's often made is that women are paid less because they were negotiating salaries or they aren't savvy with money or not as savvy as men are. But in your book, you debunk some of these very persistent myths that have to do with women's attitudes or even aptitude for money. Why do you think some of these myths are so persistent and and how wrong are they? I think what you've mentioned in your question, you alluded to people say that women aren't good enough at negotiating their pay. The reason why that narrative has become so predominant is because we're living in an age where neoliberal capitalism is the predominant ideology and it's seeped into feminism to the point where feminism, which used to be a movement, it corralled women together around a shared experience of discrimination and it encouraged them to lobby the state and public institutions to change the laws and the structures that were kind of governing society so that they work better for women. That was the case with feminism, I think, up until the 80s. And look, I don't want to be unfair to feminism at all. It does still do that. We've seen plenty of laws in the Western world have changed. But one, to me, one really defining feature of the fourth wave of feminism is that When it comes to women and economic inequality, there's this whole breed of workplace female empowerment gurus. It's a cliche to talk about Sheryl Sandberg, but she kicked it off really with her book Lean In. And it centers on this idea that women need to assert themselves in the workplace. And that has kind of trickled down into this whole narrative around female empowerment and money and the dress for the job that you want speak correctly, be assertive, take on the traits that are going to help you succeed. That's fine. By all means, be your own best friend. But no amount of self-advocacy in the workplace is going to change the social structure to keep women poorer than men. When we talk about the pay gap being this kind of, it's the epitomization of economic inequality. It's all that most people really see about economic inequality. When we talk about that, people always say, well, women should just negotiate their pay. They should self-advocate. But 
if a woman asks for a pay rise and doesn't get it, what does that mean then? Something about her strategy was incorrect. This is a kind of narrative that really speaks to a certain kind of woman. It speaks to people who are in a position to be able to advocate for themselves. So women in certain professions or in the business world, it ignores the fact that so many women work in what's known as the five C's. So catering, cashiering, cleaning, clerking and childcare. These are not roles where people are able to really advocate for themselves and that whole part of the female experience is just ignored by the, these female empowerment gurus. The other thing that is really prominent to me is the fact that when people say that women don't negotiate their pay or they're paid less because they're not assertive enough, it's really kind of assuming an Anglo-centric or kind of a Western mindset on this and, and saying that it isn't something that's peculiar to our culture, but actually it is. And I say that because in some Eastern European countries, the gender pay gap is in favour of women, even in traditionally male industries such as construction, water and waste management. It's a legacy of the Soviet era. So what happened was the Soviet Union was so keen to prove that its new economic model existed, that it put unprecedented resources into training women and encouraging them to go into exactly the same fields as men because it needed both genders to go out into the workforce and contribute to building these new economies. Now, at first, there was resistance to women going into the workforce on equal terms with men. But gradually, over time, archetypes of women in traditionally male roles started to emerge. So there was the female uh, tractor driver and then later the female engineer and the female physicist and so forth. And what we've got now, when you're looking at some of these countries, I'm thinking about Hungary or Romania, for example, is that there are more women in senior positions in some industries like construction or waste or, or water or engineering. It just shows that the pay gap is not inevitable. You mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that it might be well known in academic circles and in some other circles that there is a large gap between men and women when it comes to income and wealth but that this is not well known for everyone, but also not everyone may agree, even though, of course, the facts are right there. Certainly, there is strong resistance to change by some. So what has been the response to your book and also your exploration of gender inequality across all these different dimensions? The point you make really goes to the heart of why I wanted to write this book. And that was, I worked as a financial journalist for 15 years. I was a finance writer and columnist at the Times of London, and it really frustrated me that the facts that were well known about economic inequality and the gendered nature of it, the facts that were really well known about that in financial services and in academia were just not known at all outside of those circles. And one time, the UK government had basically launched this uh, huge initiative called auto-enrolment, which was, it was seismic. And it basically meant that employers in the UK had to give their workers a pension and contribute towards that pension. This was meant to help millions of lower paid workers. But the thing is, the government set the level for inclusion in a workplace pension at £10,000. There was no particular reason why £10,000 was picked. You know, you don't start paying tax in the UK until you earn £12,000. But then there are other elements of the tax system that kind of kick in lower than £10,000. The thing is, this policy was meant to help low paid workers save for later life. But what policymakers managed to overlook is that 59% of women are in low skilled and low paid jobs. 
and don't earn above that £10,000 threshold. By contrast, male employment in low-paid jobs is at 37%. So what's happened is that a third of working women don't earn enough money to have a workplace pension. So they're missing out both on the scheme that helps people save for retirement, but also the employer contribution to their pensions. At the same time, only 16% of men earn too little to be included in this scheme. Just flip that on its head. Can you imagine a government coming up with a landmark scheme to address retirement poverty, which predominantly affects women? Imagine it predominantly affected men, but then them coming up with a system which benefited 84% of women and then left out men. It's just a fundamental design flaw. And the reason it angered me, aside from the the whole structure of it, the reason I was angered was because I was um, in Parliament and I was talking to a senior female political figure who was really involved in uh, shaping this legislation. And she said to me completely kind of offhand, oh, yes, it's very well documented that too many women end up in retirement poverty. And the thing is, as a young reporter, I was totally unaware until I'd started working on this um, pensions policy project that was coming out. It may well well be well documented, but it isn't known to people outside of these circles. One of the other issues that you explore in the book and that you've also mentioned earlier is the huge amount of work done by women. They don't take time out from work. They do other work when they're not in paid employment, caring for children, caring for family members very often, which is fundamental to keeping our families and economies going. But it's usually invisible because it's unpaid and therefore also uncounted. What are your suggestions for having this changed? And how can the work that women do be made visible and be counted in a way that it gives equal value to the paid employment a lot of it done by men. The simple answer to that is that governments need to reframe what they consider to be essential infrastructure. So governments put public money into providing public transport and good roads, keeping ports and airports open. All of the things that the government funds as essential infrastructure really are things that will help keep the economy going. They'll help people get to work and they'll help goods and services get from A to B. The thing that's left out of that, of course, is childcare. Childcare, for some reason, is seen as a personal expense when actually it's a form of essential infrastructure that if there was comprehensive, affordable or even free childcare that was available at the times that people need it rather than the select hours that providers, uh, private providers are, are kind of willing to provide it, that in itself would help half the population go out to work and use their skills. And this seems so obvious it's not to the benefit of the economy or society for people who have skills to not be using them. Really, I had to ask myself, well, if it's not to the benefit of society, why is it even kind of in the structure? And I can't see any other answer to that than it goes back to the fundamental flaw in classical economics, which is that it was a discipline that grew up between 400 and 200 years ago. It developed And it was developed by men who were looked after by women and had attitudes that women were either kind of invisible, their work didn't matter. I mean, there's a fantastic book called Who Cooked Adam Smith's Lunch? Adam Smith being the father of classical economics. He basically devoted his life to kind of working in universities and building out his economic theories. And he remained unmarried throughout his life. Every day he went home to his mother who cooked and cleaned for him. Uh, He had his accounts done by a female cousin of his. 
the irony of this is that his economic theories posit that men are solely self-interested, that men, meaning people, always work to maximise their own self-interest, that they are calm, calculated, rational creatures that go about the world making optimal decisions to maximise their own satisfaction and their own economic circumstances. Those were his theories that he was writing whilst going home to his mother, who was being selfless. I'm sure there's plenty of other things that his mother and his cousin wanted to do. That is the basis for the economic system that we have today. And one of the reasons that it's a problem is not just because it makes these assumptions about the way that humans are, which I believe are very much incorrect. I think that most people, and a lot of economists would agree with me, most people go about the world in a kind of fug and a haze, and they're not really making rational decisions to maximise the self-interest. People make decisions for all sorts of conflicting reasons. And the other aspect to this is that over the centuries and decades since economics became a kind of established, you know, women have been generally excluded. Young people go to university and they study a syllabus that is predominantly of male thinkers and they are being taught predominantly by men. There's a real dearth of women in economics. There are more young women studying things like medicine, life sciences, biology, veterinary science, even mathematics, actually. But girls and women tend not to go into economics when they do go into the profession, they find it hard to rise up. Women are only 28% of economic students in Britain. And then when you get much higher up the profession, there's a real scarcity amongst professors. And this matters because when people do studies about what economists think about certain subjects, what are their attitudes to the environment or redistributive social policy or kind of taxation or monetary policy, for example... When you question male and female economists about those things, they tend to have slightly different perspectives. And that bias then seeps into their own work and it seeps into the kind of the rhetoric that we have around economics. So female economists tend to favour a kind of higher state spending. They more tend to favour the environment slightly more. And at the same time, male economists tend to be on the reverse end of that. And you can kind of think about as humans, what are our personal circumstances? Well, but perhaps female economists may be more interested in redistributive wealth policies or healthcare spending, for example, because they know what it's like to be on the receiving end of that. Fascinating points about needing more women in the economics profession and discipline. Previously, you also talked about how the pay gap doesn't exist everywhere in the same way like it does in the UK. Your book focuses mostly on the UK. Our listeners are from all over the world. How do some of the other issues not related to the pay gap, maybe, but for example, old age poverty or counting unpaid work relate or apply elsewhere? And what can uh, listeners from outside of the UK draw from your book? When I wrote the book, uh, my publishers asked me to include lots of examples from the UK because that's a home market in which the book was being sold. I have included lots of examples from women from around the world. And the reason that I wanted to focus on poor women in rich countries is, well, for two reasons. Firstly, because although female economic inequality persists all over the world, when it's happening in developed countries or lesser industrialised nations, often the reasons for it are very, very different to those in the West. And the other reason is that in developed Western nations, feminism has been talked about in the public sphere for decades. It's been loudly thrashed out and people largely think that the gender battle has been won. 
it hasn't. To me, economic status is the last area of gender inequality to yet to have been seriously addressed. And I mean that beyond the pay gap that has been so well discussed in the media. In terms of how women around the world are affected, the issues are broadly similar in America, in Australasia. Australia stands out as a country which has a really serious problem with old age poverty among women. At the same time, I can think of New Zealand being a really great place that's had some initiatives recently uh, to kind of address the pay issue. So Auckland City Council basically undertook an audit of what it paid people. And it wanted to look at jobs based on the skills and then compare the skills of each job to other professions and see what they are comparable to. So social work, for example, is a job that's predominantly done by women in New Zealand. When they looked at the skills that were involved in that and the stress levels, it actually ranked as comparable to being an air traffic controller. The pay discrepancy between those two jobs is actually quite huge. Social workers are really low paid and air traffic controllers tend to be much higher paid. But when you look at the skills that they are, they're on a level. And I think that that's really interesting. It's a really interesting way of kind of reframing the jobs that people do and looking at them not as women do this job or this job is caring, this job is thinking and mathematical and strategic therefore it must be male what an initiative like that also does is that it moves people beyond their current notions of which jobs are for women and which jobs are for men the reason that that's important is because rather than women or girls choosing lower paid sectors to work in there's plenty of evidence that shows that jobs become undervalued and underpaid when they become feminized. So teaching, for example, was a predominantly male job right up until um, maybe about the 80s in the UK. Now, women were actually subject to something called the marriage bar, when that meant that when women got married, they had to quit teaching. I mean, despite the fact that women were then going on to have children, which I presumably would make them quite well qualified to work with children in schools, they were expected to leave their jobs. So, it, you know, it was a masculine kind of industry. And um, teaching used to be very much higher paid and higher status than it is now when the flip side is true. It's a predominantly female workforce. Fundamentally, gendered economic inequality is wired into the system because governments ignore gender. In my book, I talk quite a lot about what happens when governments look at areas of public spending and then think about the gendered impact of those decisions. And when we talk about public spending, people always think, that, oh, God, that's a loss to the taxpayer. But no, that money is then given back to the state and the community in economic activity and the things that people are able to do with their lives in terms of going out working or going out and playing and fulfilling themselves. So you know, we talk about kind of cities in America, like San Francisco decided that actually it wants to invest in uh, streetlights so that if areas were more well lit at night, women would be more able to go out both to work and to enjoy themselves. And the money that it was putting into those streetlights then would come back to the community in terms of more people being out or like in parts of Latin America, for example, they would look at a community and say, well, women aren't going to work. And that's because when they do go to work on the packed bus in the morning, they're prone to are more liable to be sexually assaulted. So instead, local governments have invested in 
female transport, like buses that are just for women. So you know that you can pack yourself into this crowded bus and there's not going to be any chance of kind of stray hands or you know anything awful happening on the way to work. It's just small things like that, basically, that it's just totally overlooked by male-dominated governments. They're small tweaks to the system. When you look at it like that, it's not saying we need to totally unravel the system and rebuild it again from scratch, although there are arguments for doing that. You could make such big changes to society and really improve the lives of women and people around them just by making small tweaks. Thanks, Annabelle. And I would like to pick up on that point about tweaks to the system or overhauling the system. So you spoke earlier about neoliberal feminism and how there's been a push really towards getting women to stand up, quest for more pay, etc. But really, there are these systemic issues that need to be addressed. What kind of systemic issues do you think need to be addressed most urgently? And how can this be done? This is a really great topic because there's been this huge explosion in feminist campaigning over the last, it's been 10 years now since the fourth wave kicked off in roundabout 2012. Fantastic things have been achieved, make no mistake. But when it comes to women and money, what we have is really very much a model of what women should be like in the workplace and how they should approach their finances and and their money. And it's really so heavily influenced by neoliberal capitalism. It's extremely individualistic. That really, to me, jars with what feminism is about, which is historically, it's an ideology that encourages collective action to improve the structure of society so that it works better for all women, not just the women who are in high paid jobs where they're able to fight for better pay and be banging on the door of the boardroom. When I talk about how there are small tweaks that can be made to the system. Not only is that true, and I'll give you some examples, but it's also really important because people do not respond well to massive change or suggestions of massive change. An example I could give is when people in the workplace are put through anti-bias training. They go to this training, but then when it comes to putting it in place, it requires the brain to kind of stop in the moment when they're encountered with such a kind of problem and then reboot itself and try to take into account the learning that it received in training and then kind of put in place this positive action and it's basically kind of cognitively a bit too much for a lot of people's brains and I mean that in a you know a nice way what is a better way is to make small tweaks to the system say for example the workplace where anti-bias is kind of woven in so an example of that is when somebody goes for a job interview many employers will ask them what were you earning in your previous job And then they will base their salary offer on that number that somebody's suggested. Now, when an employer does that, it risks carrying any discrimination that was in the previous job forward into the new job because, you know, somebody's future and their new pay for the next few years is going to be based on what they were earning before. This isn't just an issue for women. It's an issue for any minority group or indeed majority group like older people who can be discriminated against in terms of salaries. If employers were banned from asking candidates about their previous pay and just offering pay packages, which are open to negotiation, but offering pay packages that are based on the skills and experience required for that particular role and not on what somebody decided to pay a candidate in a previous role years before, that in itself is just one way of weaving anti-bias into the system. That's a very clear example of how systematically things can change so women aren't automatically disadvantaged in these kinds of, of processes. 
This has been a really fascinating conversation. I believe we've almost run out of time. Is there anything that you would like to say to the listeners that I haven't asked you about or that you haven't been able to share just yet? I've written this book for a general reader and I've got chapters on all sorts of topics. I've made sure that each chapter isn't too long and it isn't overly complicated, so it will be accessible to the general reader. At the same time, there's a lot of hard-hitting facts in here and the feedback that I've had from the book has been incredible. I mean, people say that they've been profoundly touched and that their eyes have been opened. I'm really hoping that this can be the start of a conversation about women and their economic status and I really hope that we can kind of move the conversation forward away from the pay gap away from you just need to advocate for yourself in the workplace because there are so many other facets particularly when it comes to government spending and hidden inequality. Thank you Annabelle and I would certainly echo the responses that you've had saying that it's been eye-opening. I have found it very thought-provoking and really insightful and I've also really enjoyed reading it. I found it an enjoyable balance between facts, figures and anecdotes and I think it makes it really accessible to many readers which I also agree is super important. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today and we will share all of this with our listeners. Right. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, please follow us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, and wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you'll join us again next time.